Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. Well, on a podcast called Fraudology, of course, we talk about a lot of different types of fraud, but it typically centers around payment fraud, identity theft, account takeover, sometimes refund claims fraud, promo code abuse, things like that, right? The more common types of fraud that I think you know impact the majority of fraud fighters that work in banking or financial services, fintech e-commerce, marketplaces, etc. But recently, and especially this week, I read a few stories that made me think, hmm, is that fraud? I mean, it is, but is it? It's different. And so I thought that it might be kind of fun to unofficially play a game on this week's episode that I am titling, Is It Fraud? Uh, I don't watch this show, but I know that it's been very popular on Netflix. There's a TV show called Is It Cake? So Along those same lines, although we won't be eating any cake on this episode, unless you are and go for it. But uh, I thought it just might be kind of fun to read, hear about a couple of different types of fraud that maybe aren't what we typically think of, but that still, in a lot of senses, are fraudulent. But first, I wanted to start off today's episode with a bit of a correction from last Thursday's episode. So on last Thursday's episode, I talked about a company that was featured on Shark Tank, so very much legitimized, that offers bots as a service. And as I was talking about them, I mentioned that the primary use case for you know these bots as a service was to you know obtain popular restaurant reservations or to reserve golf course tea times or be able to reserve a spot in a workout class. And I said something to the effect of that these that these particular reasons or use cases were harmless. And in my mind, I was thinking that they were harmless compared to some of the other ways that the service could easily be used for payment fraud, for account login theft, for card testing, so many other things. Well, I was kindly corrected by the senior manager of fraud for a popular company that falls within one of those categories. And I just wanted to read a little bit of what they said, and I really appreciated it. And even though it's something I knew, it wasn't something I thought of or said in the moment. And I'm so glad that I was corrected. So I just wanted to share this. They said, even something as simple as getting a restaurant reservation is not harmless. Bots are harmful to any company that has a limited supply of inventory, digital or physical where bots are used to artificially increase demand and drive up the price of the item through third-party resellers. And they said, thanks for sharing. So like I said, in the moment, I was thinking of payment fraud and account fraud and, you know, checking on account balances and all of that, uh, things that, you know, could be done and other, you know, kind of devious schemes that this customizable bot company, you know, could be inadvertently able to provide. But this fraud fighter is a hundred percent right. And, you know, it really comes down to if 
a company can make money off of a product or a service, then so can a fraudster. It kind of reminds me of review fraud, right? For the longest time, people didn't really think that that was an issue until reviews became currency. And I'll never forget the first time I went to a company that the only thing they provide is reviews, whether it's for restaurants and popular places to go in different cities or whether it's, you know, for hotels and travel and all of that. But all they do is reviews. And this was back in 2013. And I went to visit them because I was in their city and I was really curious what their fraud team did. And I was expecting them to say, well, you know, we have a subscription service or something like that. And we're making sure that there isn't, you know, stolen credit cards. But no, it had nothing to do with payment fraud. It was all about looking for patterns and trends and reviews and trying to take them down. And this was 10 years ago. And, you know, they said we can't be trusted if there's a whole bunch of fake reviews or if they're, you know, talking up a place that doesn't exist or something like that, we have to take them down because it's our currency. And so that's just one example too of it's not typical fraud, but it's something that the companies that offer that, if they're being taken advantage of, if bad actors are using that for their own benefit in various ways, well, then to them, that's fraudulent because it is stealing from them in a way. So Like I mentioned earlier, this kind of inspired me to share a few cases or examples to ask you in each instance, is this fraud? I kind of wish that we could have a two-way conversation, but you know, still it's something to think about. And like I mentioned just a minute ago, I mean, I think that fraud is often in the eye of the beholder in a way, right? So the way that a company defines fraud is going to be based on what the company provides and what they sell. So that's kind of what I wanted to say to set it up before diving into a couple of these examples. And it just happened that this week these came out and I have to thank Frank uh, McKenna of the Frank on Fraud blog, because two out of three of these examples came from his newsletter this week. As I was reading it, I was like, I'm seeing a theme here where these are very unusual types of fraud, but I can understand why the companies, you know, think that are calling them that and are having to find ways to try to mitigate losses, you know, either to their brand reputation or, you know, customer frustration or other types of losses in order to make their customers happy and hopefully to be able to, you know, mitigate uh, these bad actors or just these people who are trying to take advantage of things, right? And we know the opportunistic fraud is, you know, one very popular reason for committing fraud. You know, it's just the opportunity was there, but any kind of fraud costs a company money. So to set the stage, and I know people in the US will probably be familiar with this, but I know that I have a lot of uh, international listeners, so bear with me, but I think you'll still find this pretty funny, whether you've uh, flown on this airline or not. So I don't typically say names unless they're featured in an article, and in this case, they were, so it's a public story. To set the stage, Southwest Airlines um, is in the US primarily. I think they have a few international flights, and they do things differently in several ways, but one that's very different from other airlines is that there are no assigned seats. You can't reserve a particular seat online. Instead, it's kind of first in line as the first person to pick out the seat. And passengers are assigned boarding groups like A, B, C, etc. And obviously, you know, it's A and then a number, right? And then B and then a number. And you all kind of line up in these, I don't know, this weird Q thing that will say, you know, the letter and then it'll have one through six. And then the people that have A, one through six are standing in that little spot. And then 
a seven through 10. Okay, well, they all stand in that spot. Sometimes people are like, okay, I have seven. Do you have eight? And try to get in line. I, when I've done this before, I'm just like, I mean, as long as I'm in that section, I don't care. I don't need to get <laughs> exactly right. But it's an airline that we've flown a few times, especially since we moved, uh, because it's a little more convenient, especially to go down to the San Francisco Bay Area, where I obviously have a lot of great connections and clients, but also some really good friends too. So we've only recently started flying on them again and just here and there. And um, it's a unique experience. But boarding groups are usually assigned based on like your status with the airline, you know, how many points you have, when you checked in, etc. And some people even pay a premium to be in a boarding group. In one of the first boarding groups, they're originally assigned to a later one so that they can pick their seat, right? I prefer an aisle seat. I don't like having to ask other people to get up if I have to go use the restroom. That's just, that's usually my main reason. I like to, you know, sit in an aisle. So I, if that was really important to me and it was going to be a full flight, I might, you know, pay an extra 20 or $30 or whatever it is. I don't even know uh, to get into group A. So I'm telling you this background for a reason, and I'll read a summary of this article uh, and you'll understand why I thought that it was important to set the stage there. Several passengers are exploiting a loophole in Southwest Airlines boarding system where passengers with disabilities are allowed to pre-board, securing better seat choices. So they're able to pre-board before a one through five even gets to go on the plane and pick their seat. However, some individuals are exploiting this by falsely claiming a disability and then gaining early access to desirable seats. This practice is especially prevalent on Southwest Airlines due to their open seating policy, which allows passengers to select their seats upon boarding. So within this article, there were several examples of social media posts where people were taking pictures of, you know, like 20 passengers in wheelchairs waiting to be boarded, but then, you know, They said that it was funny because when we landed, only one person needed a wheelchair because, you know, having a wheelchair gets you your favorite seat or the best seat in the house on the way in. But, you know, to get a wheelchair after the flight has already gone and you've already had your premium seat isn't really important anymore. So, you know, they provided some instances where passengers were feigning injuries to request wheelchair assistance and use this strategy to secure preferred seating and avoid basic economy restrictions. The problem arises from the honor system, where where passengers self-report their need for pre-boarding due to a disability, even when they don't require wheelchair assistance. This unethical behavior disadvantages genuine passengers with mobility issues who truly need assistance. Uh, And the person who uh, wrote this article suggested that Southwest could mitigate this issue by encouraging able-bodied passengers not to occupy certain seats, ensuring that those with mobility challenges have access to appropriate seating arrangements. Specifically, passengers could refrain from taking aisle seats and avoid the first several rows of the aircraft, allowing a fairer distribution of seating choices among travelers. So it was nice of the author to give or the journalist to give a suggestion, but it's such a good example of how often this happens, whether it's in technology or any other company where everybody thinks, okay, this is a great system, right? We're going to create this process and it's going to allow people to pick their seats. That way we aren't having to reserve them and have the challenges that come with that. And I'm sure there's other reasons also why Southwest does that. And nobody really thought of the loopholes, right? And because it's self-reporting and because of health reasons, right? And privacy, 
You don't necessarily want to ask, hey, I need to see your health report or I need to see a doctor's note. Uh, I can just see all kinds of people getting raged about that. But there were some examples where in one case, there were 50 people that all claimed that they had needed pre-boarding because of a disability. And then some of the people that paid the premium were getting sat in like the middle of the airplane in a middle seat because there were so many people that were claiming to have injuries. They also get to bring their party with them. So if in one case there was a grandmother, and I mean, she may have needed the the wheelchair, but all five of her family that were with her got to board early also. So, I mean, some of that is, you know, how important is it, right? Like for a three or four hour flight, how important is it to everyone else on the airplane that they get the best seat? But it's also about fairness. And like I said, this is also something that is impacting Southwest brand and making their good passengers really frustrated that there are people that are being allowed to take advantage of this loophole. And I think that's what it comes down to is sometimes when there's a company that doesn't fix a loophole, then there are customers that think, well, you must not be safe. If you didn't fix that loophole, you don't care about your good customers, then I'm going to go somewhere else. But my question for you is, is that fraud? Is it fraud to feign a disability to be able to pick your seat on an airplane? I don't really know the answer to that. I know it's unethical, obviously, but that is the first one for you to think about. The second one, these are just ridiculous to me, but also pretty, I mean, entertaining in a way, right? We all like a dumb fraud story or a silly fraud story. But this one, I would say it takes the cake, but it is food related. So I don't know, maybe I'm just hungry today. If you're a regular listener of Fraudology, you've heard me talk about spec. Not only does their no-code platform let you instantly assemble the fraud solutions that you need to stay ahead of bad actors, but Spec's long list of integrations is always growing, empowering you to orchestrate your data to create customized customer journeys. Spec lets you stay ahead of fraud while enabling great customer experiences for your legitimate users. Request your personalized demo of Spec's Trust Cloud today at specprotected.com. That's www.specprotected.com. Or you can visit their website by clicking the link in today's show notes. So uh, this article says that a 50-year-old Lithuanian man living in Spain was arrested for repeatedly faking heart attacks at fancy restaurants to avoid paying his bill, according to local police. The man, whose identity has not been disclosed, has used this tactic more than 20 times this year. During his most recent attempt, he ordered two whiskeys and seafood paella at a restaurant in a small beach town in Spain, accumulating a bill of around 35 euros, uh, which is approximately around $40 US or a little less than that. When restaurant staff confronted him about the unpaid bill, he feigned a heart attack. However, in this case, the staff saw right through his ruse and alerted the police, not an ambulance, who are already familiar with this particular man's repeated attempts. Uh, The man's MO involves ordering expensive items like lobster and fancy cuts of steak and premium whiskeys at upscale restaurants. And despite being arrested multiple times, he seems unfazed by spending nights in jail. And he'll often greet officers at a restaurant with a smile like, oh, okay, here you are. Yep, it's my turn. I get arrested. 
After his latest arrest, he was taken into custody, and although specific details about his punishment or release were not disclosed by the authorities, the case has drawn attention due to the man's audacious attempts to evade paying for his meals using fake medical emergencies. I just realized that in both those cases, it's (laughs) to do with people faking medical uh, emergencies or medical conditions. That's horrible. I honestly didn't realize that. But I mean, clearly this person is stealing and probably causing a scene if he's faking a heart attack. But is it fraud? Is it theft? You know, is it more because it's in person? It's you know, more around theft or burglary. I don't, I don't know. But I just found it really fascinating that there was a whole article written up about this. And I'll be posting the links to these stories in the show notes if you want to read about more of the details. So there's another case, you know, I was thinking about coupon fraud a little bit, and I learned a word or like a term recently called coupon glittering. And it's essentially a fraudulent practice where individuals exploit errors in coupon creation to purchase items at a discount. This exploitation occurs when a retailer issues a coupon with a glitch, allowing it to be used on unintended items. Coupon glittering can be accidental, but it can also be deliberate, with some shoppers intentionally taking advantage of these glitches. This practice is not limited to physical stores and can also happen online with online communities sharing information about these exploited coupons. I've heard several examples of coupon glittering over the years. Uh, where you know I might be on the phone with the merchant and they might say, oh my gosh, yesterday was a nightmare. We didn't realize that there was a glitch on our website that made this very expensive item very inexpensive. And someone posted it on a blog or on public social media and it just come like wildfire. And by the time you can patch that and fix it, there's a lot of you know money that was not intended for those coupons that's now been lost. One example of coupon glittering just kind of quickly is if there's a coupon for an outdoor furniture set, you know, usually an outdoor furniture set, let's just say for sake of argument is a thousand dollars. Well, that coupon might say a hundred dollars off an outdoor furniture set, but you have to buy the whole set in order to get a hundred dollars off. But when somebody goes to use the coupon on something that is just like one deck chair, that would only be a hundred dollars and they get that for free. The coupon works because it wasn't limited to just the SKUs or the product numbers of the outdoor furniture. That's just one example. So instead of providing a 10% off discount to get that larger sale, now this company has issued basically a 100% coupon. And that happens so much in online and I know you guys know all about it. Uh, And I thought I'd share a story of a company that I heard about not too long ago. And I did everything I possibly could to anonymize this so nobody can try to reverse engineer it because it's not public. I mean, it probably can be found posted about on social media somewhere, but this was quite a while ago. But I know of a large company that had a special coupon created for 50 VIPs. There was an elite meeting or party or something with very high level people and the marketing department wanted to do something special for them. And the voucher was for something significant. I want to say, I think it was for sure over $300. I can't remember exactly how much it was, but all they had to do was scan a QR code and $300 was loaded to their account, uh, kind of like a wallet. And the marketing team created the coupon quickly and in a vacuum, right? They didn't think to talk to anyone else or, you know, run it by anyone else. Cause why? Um, so no other department was aware of it until things happened. 
The marketing team only gave the paper voucher or the coupon to those 50 people at the small exclusive event. But to save time, they created one QR code for all of the vouchers and didn't uh, put a limit on it in their system. So within two or three hours, a picture of one of the vouchers ended up on a public social media site. And within five hours, thousands of people had added the amount of money onto their account. And so, you know, let's just say it was $300, right? If you have a thousand people doing that, that's $300,000 just, you know, very quickly. And I happen to know that it was more than that. So in some cases, people spent that money right away, sometimes online, sometimes in store. For other people, they just kind of kept it in their account and thought, okay, well, as I go to the store, I'll whittle it down and ooh, free money. And so I guess my question is for the people who weren't at this private and elite event, the people who the coupon wasn't meant for, and that might have stumbled upon it on this public social media site, was that fraud? So the story kind of continues on this one as far as uh, the company ended up reversing the voucher amount on every account that downloaded it. But it ended up causing even more problems because instead of just kind of zeroing out the totals, and, you know, say somebody spent $50, but still had 250 on their wallet, what probably shouldn't happen is just, hey, we're going to zero out anything from that promo code or that coupon that hasn't already been spent. Well, it caused more problems because for any account that had spent, you know, any money from the voucher, especially had really spent all of the money from the voucher or even $50, they would have a negative balance in that amount. So basically what the engineering team did quickly again, is just, okay, we're going to take $300 out of every single account that downloaded this QR code. Well, if people already spent $100 of it, and they're taking, you know, 300 out, well, now they have a negative balance of $100. It became a customer service nightmare. And as a side note, and this is one of the reasons why I am constantly preaching to try to advocate for your team and explain what you do and how you work and all of that to other leaders of the departments, because you never know. And had there just been, it could have been a really quick conversation, right? Like, Hey, we're going to do a coupon for 50 VIPs. Hey, fraud team. Is there any way that you, you know, suggest that we do it? Hey, yeah, we should probably have, you know, individual QR codes and only print out 50 and have each one be one use only, or we should probably in the within the system say that once 50 of those promos were added to accounts that it no longer works it's the cause and effect that those of us in fraud have gotten really good at but not everyone has that skill and a lot of times they're just thinking about something quick and easy and whatever's easy at the front end and i get it but that alone cost that company hundreds of thousands of dollars all because you know, there was a quick shortcut made at the very beginning. And those kind of things happen all the time. I'm sure that you guys have your own stories like that too. Well, I think that kind of concludes the examples that I was going to share today. There are several more uh, in so many other areas. And uh, I don't know if you found it kind of fun to think about whether these things are fraud or not, or to realize, huh, fraud looks really different for other types of companies let me know. And if you have a story like this that you think would be fun for me to share, let me know. I'm trying to kind of mix things up a little bit on Thursdays. So mixing up fraud news with deep dives. I've just inadvertently the last couple of episodes have been around pop culture in different ways. I never thought I'd talk about Taylor Swift and how she can you know, 
accidentally and certainly not her directly, but how, you know, popularity of items that she uses or likes all of a sudden take off and turn into fraud and reselling. And then last week, obviously the bot story, which I still, it just blows my mind that such a popular and you know well-regarded TV show legitimized that. I just, I legitimately now, especially after receiving that comment from the senior fraud manager for the merchant uh, that has this type of fraud, I can't think of anything that a bot can do that would be harmless. I've really tried to think of it. I can't think of anything. And so I don't believe that the answer is if you can't beat them, join them, right? I think the answer needs to be continuing to invest in technology that's going to identify bots before they can cause harm. And right now, they're doing a pretty good job at blocking visibility to those bot detection products within cybersecurity, but there are other ways to detect them. So anyway, just a couple quick review of the last couple episodes. I've had fun doing them um, and just trying to mix it up a little bit for you guys. But I always appreciate your feedback. I always appreciate you listening to the podcast. And I look forward to speaking with you more next week. Thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.